0: Hello, thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with Susanna Greer.
1: Hello, Joe. That's Dr. Susanna Greer to you.
0: <laughs> and We've come here today <laughs> to talk to you about this thing called lipids. We spoke with Ray Blind, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And I know you're thinking, lipids? Um, how quickly can I stop listening to this? But what if I told you that Ray Blind's lab is interested in the molecular design principles of life. That sounds pretty cool, right? And what if I told you that Dr. Blind is one of the best scientific communicators you're gonna hear in a while? You'd be ready to listen to some lipid talk then, right? Susanna, you spoke with the good Dr. Blind. What did you think?
1: Ray did a great job of helping us to understand that lipids play lots of pretty critical roles in cells. And one of them happens to be in the nucleus um, and happens to control cellular communication and when genes are turned on and proteins are generated and when genes are turned off. And as you might expect, because this is the ACS Research Podcast, um, it seems that too much of the lipid that he studies, which happens to be an enzyme, doing too much of its thing turns out to be a, a bad thing for us because it really seems to have a role to play in cancer cell growth, particular particularly in glioblastoma. So he tells a cool story of not only how this happens, but how he thinks he may be able to stop it. So I think you're gonna be a lipid lover when a this is A lipid believer, for sure. Yeah.
0: And um, you know what? We should definitely mention that, you know, one of the reasons we're able to fund Ray Blind is because of the generous support of Stephen Udine. Very grateful to you, Mr. Udine. Thanks for everything. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the podcast.
1: Let's do it. Hey, Ray, how are you?
2: Great. How are you?
1: I am doing really well. I'm excited to have a fun conversation with you today. We're going to learn a lot about lipids. Are you ready?
2: Oh, yes. I'm absolutely ready for lipids.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna eventually get to a conversation about all the fantastic things that you and your group are doing, but we need to have kind of lipids for dummies, and that would be me um, for a little bit. So, because you don't just study any old regular lipids, you study lipids that are found in a pretty specific place in the cell in the nucleus. So we're going to get to that conversation. We're going to talk about nuclear lipids, but I want to level set. So why are you so excited about lipids? And I guess maybe even let's start back a little bit further than that. How mm-hmm. would we know a lipid if we saw one?
2: <laughs> well, uh, if you saw a lipid, you would have to have like extremely great vision because they're tiny little microscopic uh, little molecules um, that you need to actually uh, x-rays to to actually see. So they're they're molecules. You can't really see them. Now anybody who wants to look at a lipid, you could look at butter. That's a lipid. (laughs) Uh, Olive oil, that's another kind of lipid. Um, And that's what they basically are water-hating or hydrophobic molecules that kind of coagulate with each other. And that's kind of why when you mix oil with water, the oil separates away from the water, and that's kind of the general um, physical principle that defines lipids, is that they're water-hating. They want to stick to each other and get away from the water.
1: Okay, so you've given us some great explanation that we can't, we can't see these molecular structures. They're, they're really small, um, but you gave us a nice explanation that they are basically these water-hating molecules. So what might they do then in a cell? Why are lipids important, just kind of in general?
2: Right. Well, most people are familiar with their uh, kind of function as fat storage. So the fat tissue or the adipose tissue that you have, that I have on my stomach or other people have on other parts of their bodies, (laughs) um, that is storing energy for the organism, for the, the person and that is what its function is. And then as you don't eat, your body will burn that, that adipose fat tissue away. Um, that's not really what I study. That's more of a metabolic function of, of, of fats. But I study um, their function. Uh, well, actually, another function that they have is really important for all life, um, which is all living organisms that have cells all have a little membrane around them that defines uh, the inside of that membrane as self and then the outside is non-self. So uh, the lipids form that membrane and that's a chemical barrier that is between self and non-self. And then the third function of lipids is, is really a highly specialized minor component of all the lipids that you have in your body which is called a signaling function. So essentially if a hormone um, is released into your bloodstream, the hormone the, needs to be, the signal from that hormone needs to be amplified um, and that the lipids, these little, little minor component, these signaling lipids will amplify that signal and allow one tiny little hormone molecule to actually affect thousands of different proteins in each and every one of the cells in your body. Um, and that is a requirement uh, for to have communication between cells in human beings, like that's how your your pancreas communicates with your stomach and your brain communicates with your adrenal glands. And all of that is, in, in part, mediated by these, these signaling lipids.
1: Oh, cool. Okay, so you've made a good case for why we should all be super excited about lipids. And the first... Potentially not so excited, but very necessary, and that is yeah. fat storage.
2: <laughs> terrible terrible, storage. Yeah.
1: But it is what it is. Um, <laughs> the second is really cool. Um, we're not going to have time really to talk about it much today, but is that lipids form these structures that we call membranes that help cells to know what's the inside and what's the outside. Um, so critical molecular structures that they form. And then the third, which is what... I think we're going to delve down a little bit more into is a function that you summarized as just being really important in communication. So how do cells talk to each other? And one way is through lipids and and you you kind of explain them as being like a megaphone. Like if you have a really soft signal that we need to tell lots of cells. So, and use the example of a hormone, um, lipids can be used to make that, information heard or seen or felt by lots of cells in lots of places in the body. So,
2: yeah, okay. Absolutely, yes. All right,
1: I think we got it. So, mm-hmm. we now, though, are going to move inside that membrane and talk about lipids and some of the roles that they play inside the nucleus. So, I think because most of us aren't sitting in the eighth grade and thinking about <laughs> all the... <laughs> different parts of a cell um, what so before we even talk about nuclear lipids um, and why they might be important which you've kind of given us a little bit of a cliffhanger and said it it's probably has to do something with communication but why what happens in the nucleus so just tell us a little bit about that.
2: Sure. well I, I, I mean I bet you most people listening to this remember, the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell, right? Everybody <laughs> remembers that from high school. Or, right. um, and, and so that's, that's one of the components. And then there's all sorts of other different little uh, structures inside each one of your cells, and they each have a different job to do. That's critical for the functioning of, of each one of your cells and all of your tissues. And so the nucleus is the spot in, inside of your cells that contains the DNA. And, of course, the DNA is the genetic information that has your genes in it. And, of course, your genes you get from your parents. Um, And, uh, of course, well, humans have a lot of these genes. They have about 20,000 of these genes. But um, that's what happens in the nucleus is that these genes get turned on and turned off. And uh, that's uh, basically the, the, the big function of the nucleus is to have those genes to have the compartment inside your cells where those genes are located.
1: Okay, cool. So I, I probably already know what you're going to say here, but if we were to be inside the nucleus, so if, if we were just to take a peek in, what does it look like in there? Is it kind of like, it seems like it'd be pretty jam-packed with all this stuff, all this nuclear material, these 20,000 genes, but tell me a little bit about what the inside of the nucleus looks like.
2: Well, it's really strange. It's not like the rest of the cell. There's there's actually um, big parts of the nucleus that, and this stuff is really at the cutting edge of, of science right now. Um, there's these really strange um, non-membrane bound compartments. They're kind of like phase separations that are inside the nucleus and they're just kind of gunked up proteins that nobody's, um, really understood before. They're they're kind of globs of things inside the cell, or I'm sorry, inside the nucleus, and the functions of those globs of proteins are just starting to become known. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the DNA there, um, and the DNA is organized. Most people have heard of chromosomes before, um, and chromosomes are just the ultrastructure of the DNA, and the DNA is actually one. Um, you have a certain number of chromosomes and each one of the, the chromosomes is, is one piece of DNA and that piece of DNA is wrapped around proteins and that whole structure is called a chromosome. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's what it's full of. It's full of those chromosomes, the DNA, and then all of the molecular machinery that is required to, to, get the, to, um, to express those genes. Um, which is, and, and the genes just hold the sequence information, and that gets translated um, by that machinery into proteins and enzymes, which actually are the things in the cell that do work. They do all the jobs that a particular cell needs to do.
1: All right. Well, first of all, I'm super glad that our podcast is on the cutting edge of science. We certainly oh, think yeah. so. Oh, yeah. And now you've said it. So
2: (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) I
1: I can use that quote forever. So, okay. You've set up a cool scene for us that inside the nucleus, there's a lot going on. There are these globular compartments that we're just starting to understand what might be happening there. There's all this incredible, actually mind blowing amount of genetic information organized into chromosomes. So, Help us to understand a little bit more about that, because you've told us that this genetic information, so our DNA is, com, is contains, um, you called it sequence, so basically an organization of information that can be read at different points in time and different locations along the DNA to tell the cell what kind of functionality it needs, right? We might need to um, express is the word you use or to turn on this particular gene to make this protein because we need to have this happen inside the cell or outside the cell. So how then, this just seems like a big mess to me. So how is all of that genetic information actually organized? You mentioned chromosomes, but it's a lot more complex than that. Could you help us understand it a little bit?
2: Yeah, um, so the the chromosomes themselves are organized and so they are organized into something that's kind of broadly referred to as chromatin and the chromatin is the kind of the basic unit of chromatin is this uh, particular group of proteins called histone proteins and that's actually what the DNA is wrapped around. And that structure with the the DNA bound to this histone protein is the basic unit of, of chromatin. And so what I actually study is how the genes, these genes that we have in our cells, get turned on and off. And that's very important because it really is the difference between us and worms and flies and all sorts of other organisms. Uh, it's also so if you if you look at the number of just the number of genes that a human has, it's about the same as a worm, or a fish, or a plant, or uh, any any uh, any other uh, uh, complex multicellular organism. So the really the difference between people and all these different organisms that are on earth is not really the genes themselves but it's really how we turn those genes on and off we human beings can really turn those genes on and off with really exquisite control it's very tightly regulated and that's really what gets messed up when you have a cancerous cell they kind of have this dysregulated ability to turn on their genes turn their genes on and off appropriately Um, And that's what I study, how the genes get turned on and turned off and the the consequences of that.
1: All right, so now we're getting to the nuts and bolts of what is so exciting here. So so you study a particular nuclear lipid, which we now know is this water-fearing molecule that's hanging out in the nucleus and you've told us it's critical for communicating information and you've led us down this cool pathway to understand that it's really important that the right genes are turned on and off at the right time. And you've also reminded us that in cancer, those things often don't happen at the right time. And so we call that dysregulation. So tell us a little bit more about this nuclear lipid. So why is the interaction that it has with chromatin, so this organized DNA so important?
2: Right. Well the so remember when I was telling you before about these these clumps of stuff in the nucleus well some of those clumps of things that people have seen in the nucleus are actually lipids and that is that doesn't really make a lot of sense people have seen them uh, using microscope techniques and other techniques they've seen them in the kind of the middle of the nucleus but that that's that's where the water is and so it didn't really make any sense because these mm-hmm. lipids are water-fearing. They don't want to be near water. They want to coagulate with themselves in a, in a kind of a membrane structure. So the, the reason why the particular lipid that I study is important is because as a postdoc, I discovered that these, this particular lipid is able to interact with a particular nuclear protein in a very specific way that explains why it is that you can see these lipids in these uh, water compartments within the nucleus. Hmm. It kind of gave a reason for that. And to get into that is really complicated. But the reason why that protein is important is because it produces, it's responsible for the production of a lot of hormones that can drive cancer growth. Hmm. So this particular protein, it will bind to the genes that activate all of the um, production of uh, of of sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, all of the steroid hormones that are important for sexual development, but also they're often important in the in breast cancer as well as other endocrine cancers. Um, so that's how I I uh, I actually made the discoveries that I initially made studying endocrinology, not mm. actually studying cancer biology. So that's why that's how these lipids interact with with um with the with the chromatin and and why they're important because they can they can bind to proteins that control the regulation of these genes Um, and that's very important in cancer biology
1: all right so the converse then would be true that if something happens to that interaction between the lipid that you study and these proteins that are controlling genes that are important in different cancers. You gave the example of breast cancer and and endocrine cancers. Um, This would be problematic. So can you tell us, is it, is the problem that there is too much of this interaction or too little in cancer or that the amount of time that they interact? Just give us, can you give us kind of an give us an idea of what's going on here
2: sure yeah the 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 hypothesis that we're operating under is that there's too much of this interaction in cancer and the reason why we think that is is because all of these little lipid these signaling lipid molecules that are again they're the very minor component of of the total fat and lipid that's in your body or in your cells um, the, the enzyme, there is a particular enzyme that we study that manufactures this one particular lipid in the nucleus. And we found that when we knock that the gene out for that enzyme using CRISPR technology, when we knock that out in, in different cancer cell lines, in particular in glioblastoma cell lines, that those human glioblastoma cell lines will stop growing. They kind of stop proliferating and they stop growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we also did a gene analysis of what genes are being regulated and we found that all of the genes that are that control um, the proliferation or the growth of cells those are all down regulated when we knock out that gene. And so that's really the connection and kind of the, the way that these lipids are are affecting gene expression we think it's the evidence I should say that suggests that that's the case because when we remove the enzyme that makes the lipids the cells stop growing so therefore we think that one of the reasons why they stop growing is the loss of this of of this lipid
1: that's fascinating all right so yeah
2: it's really cool
1: just, like to, <laughs> just to play devil's advocate, because we're always thinking about ways to take developmental biology to translate it to the clinic. So if we, it's interesting that you said that there, these lipids, there's not a ton of them. In fact, you said it's a very minor population.
2: Very. Of t- I mean, it's almost undetectable. It's so, such a tiny little amount in there. They're very powerful, though. So,
1: so. They are powerful. And some of the things that they are doing work out not so great for us. So you mentioned glioblastoma, which is a a tough cancer. But Mm -hmm. because they're there, we assume that they also have an important role in normal cell development. And you've gotten rid of them. You've done that in the lab and cell lines and seeing that those cells stop doing what cancer cells are really great at, which is proliferating, growing indefinitely. But what would happen if you did that potentially in a human? It, how, or how do you get from point A to point B where the lip, you know that the lipid is there, you know it has a role in cancer. We also assume that it has a role in normal cell development. But is there a way to block it? Um, and not impact normal development or function. So, what would be the therapeutic translation? I guess in your wildest dreams. Right.
2: Dream? Oh well, it's not my wildest dreams. I wait till we get to that part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, the therapeutic translation is still a ways off. But how wow. you usually test this is you use a preclinical model, like a mouse model. Mm-hmm. Now, when people have taken this particular gene and removed it from mice the mice die in development, right. okay? And normally that is not a good thing. It, that that suggests that the whatever protein or whatever gene you've removed is extremely important for, the, for just maintaining life of the organism. And so you wouldn't want to go into a human patient and actually target this thing uh, therapeutically by inhibiting it because it could have a lot of toxic side effects. Um, however, what people have done is they've made... Um, not necessarily knocking out the gene in development but later on in development and tissue specific knockouts and all of those mice are actually quite healthy and fine they have small phenotypes Um, and actually the scientists that do those experiments often complain to me that (laughs) when they get that the results from knocking out this gene in the in the adult animals is actually very it's a small effect that they that they see so we have uh, that's really the the reason in preclinical models to suggest that um, perhaps inhibiting this enzyme that we've linked in petri dishes to cancer might be a viable therapeutic approach in in uh, in full bore clinical models. Um, but we don't know that. That's the real answer to the question until we have a actual drug to inhibit this enzyme and we actually go into the clinic, we w- really won't know um, what the effect will be. But that's what my work is trying to get to. Hopefully one day um, we can get to that point. And I have very specific things that I'm doing um, that are that are designed to make that happen as quickly as possible.
1: Tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us a little bit more about that pathway towards finding a specific drug or i guess an inhibitor would be another word to use where are you in that
2: wow <laughs> this is what um is really most uh, most excited about so like i said we we took this um we took this gene and we took these human glioblastoma cells in a petri dish and we used CRISPR to kind of to knock it out to completely remove the the gene and then ask, okay, what happens to the cells? But you can't do that in a, in a patient. You can't go in, at least today, and remove a whole gene from a tumor and, and then have that be a, an effective therapy. What people use are drugs, which mm-hmm. are and drugs are little, small molecules. Um, they're little chemicals that go in there and they usually, what they do is they bind to and inhibit something inside of the cells that the good cells that are growing don't need and the bad cells, Need, and that way you kill the cancer without killing the rest of the cells in the in the patient, um, and that's the you know kind of a fundamental principle of of how drugs work. So um the so we have this um, enzyme that we're working on, and this particular enzyme is well first of all the fact that it's an enzyme is really um, good for drug design. For making a drug because it's 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 kind of like a little molecular machine with lots of gears turning around in it. Lots of lots of places where it can fail, <laughs> and so what we can do is we can throw kind of a, a molecular wrench in its gears and we can stop it from working relatively easily. Um, at least it's not um, it's not something. Uh, like you're trying to interfere with, with two proteins just sticking to each other inside of a cell. That's actually really difficult to do. This is a little mm-hmm. bit easier task to accomplish. It's kind of so, like throwing a
1: wrench in a bike, right? Absolutely, or like in a, yeah. Or in a car, things just right. more specifically it, than that. But it it's easy, I guess, with a small um, target to do a lot of damage. Right,
2: exactly. You can stop the whole thing. The whole car won't work if you have the right wrench and you stick it in the right sprocket gear thing, the whole car will stop. Whereas uh, some of the other types of interactions and in cells are, are kind of like Velcro, like a huge sticky surface that's mm-hmm. kind of very difficult to interfere with. If, if you interfere with it at one point, that's really not good enough. You got to you have to interfere with a slice of Velcro all over the place. It takes a lot of energy to pull it apart. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the thing that I work on is this enzyme where we, where it's possible at least. Now, everybody who's listening to this is probably aware that even though it's easy, I'm saying that it's easy to get a drug, it's still not easy. It's, it still costs a lot of money to do drug design and to do clinical trials and all that. Um Tens to hundreds of millions of dollars actually so what we've done Which is an innovative way to get around that is We've actually made a a mutation or a variation in our enzyme that makes it Exquisitely sensitive to kind of like an off-the-shelf chemical that we already have in the lab Mm -hmm. So that way what we can do is we can put that using CRISPR we can put that mutation into the gene and we've shown that that doesn't really affect the, the enzyme's function, all that. It, it decreases a little bit, but it's still functional inside cells, the cancer cells. And now what we've done is we've sensitized those cancer cells to an off-the-shelf chemical that we have in the lab. So now what we've done is we've replaced the gene with a chemically sensitized gene that we can treat these glioblastoma cells with a potential, with, with, a, with a kind of an engineered drug. This whole system is kind of an engineered system. And that way, what we can do is validate. If we did have a good drug against this enzyme, what would happen in a preclinical model or in, or in cells growing in a Petri dish? And if we can prove that if we, drug against the normal enzyme that it would work, that might inspire a drug company to actually make the investment required to go into uh, more, to develop the drug, go into the preclinical models and validate the drug, and then go into a, a, a patient clinical trial. So that's what we have. And, and that, whole, that whole process is called chemical genetics, um, and that's what we're trying to apply to this enzyme. And we have applied it actually um, successfully. And now we're actually moving into the preclinical models to prove that in, in mice, that we can give the mice glioblastoma and then engineer the tumors to have this uh, variation of our enzyme and then treat the mice with the, with the off-the-shelf chemical inhibitor and cure the mice of glioblastoma. And hopefully that will that will um, provide proof of principle to drug companies that, hey, maybe we should have a drug design effort against this, uh, against this particular enzyme. And they can therefore make the investment required to do that. We've already shown that this, this approach actually works in the human uh, glioblastoma cells growing in Petri dishes. And now we have a collaborator here at Vanderbilt named Rebecca Irhe, and we're we're doing the mouse preclinical xenograft models with her. And hopefully we're able to cure the glioblastoma in those mice. Um, We we have high confidence that that should work. Um, And then we would have, uh, it would really be strong evidence that, that a drug directed against this enzyme Will uh, will be effective in glioblastoma, at, at least in preclinical models. So.
1: All right. Well, fingers crossed. Big time. Yes. All of them. Thank all you. Of the fingers crossed. Yes,
2: all of them and toes. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. All right. I just have a couple more questions. I want to let you get back to all this wonderful work. But um, sure. you've been funded by the American Cancer Society. I'd love to know if there's a specific way that this funding impacted your career or um, affected your research? I think that'd be interesting to know.
2: Yes, uh, it has tremendously. Um, well, first of all, just the, just the science that it funded, the actual experiments that we do in the lab that we use the money from the American Cancer Society to pay for, generally, um, the American Society Cancer Society funds more high-risk, high-reward projects from young investigators that haven't proved themselves yet <laughs> so, um and that's really refreshing and it's really um, it, it's it, it enables me to do the, the experiments that I just told you about we wouldn't have been able to do those experiments without the support of the American Cancer Society um, also it allows me to take that data that uh, that we generated and use it to apply and get uh, federal funding Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been able to take these results and put in grant applications to the federal government that have resulted in millions of dollars of funding for this uh, research program. So, And that's all money that is going to be applied to um, cancer research. So that's, that's a good thing. And then kind of the thing that maybe some of your listeners may not be aware of is that as a as a scientist I don't necessarily need to be doing um, cancer research there are actually other options available uh, to me and in fact I am in uh, uh, the division of my appointment is in the diabetes endocrinology and metabolism division at Vanderbilt Now, my division is very supportive of interdisciplinary work but um, they uh, this funding from the American Cancer Society has kept me in cancer research doing cancer research because I have the funding to actually do it Um, if I didn't have the funding um, I would be doing more endocrinology metabolism research probably Um, it's hard to say what would happen if XYZ didn't happen but I did get the funding and I am doing the cancer research so that's that's an aspect of it, it's kind of like a more practical aspect. You have to think about where your career is going and, and where you're most likely to get funding. And that's something that maybe some of your, the people listening to the podcast at least might not be aware of, that there are scientists have choices of what they work on. And if sure. they can get funding, um, it makes it more likely that they work on a particular problem. And that's certainly true for me. Um, the ACS money really drove all of these results and, and uh, all of the science that we've done so far in the lab.
1: I would say you are well on the way to proving yourself in the cancer field. And um, this is... A, well, I hope a so.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: this is certainly, a, you know, this is a season of gratitude. And um, I think I speak on behalf of the entire ACS and certainly the uh, folks who have been impacted by cancer and those who love them that um, we are awfully glad you're in cancer research. So keep up the good work. We're counting on it.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm very uh, very cognizant of that um, for sure.
1: So speaking of those individuals who've been impacted by cancer, many of our listeners are cancer patients or caregivers. Um, Is there a message that you would like to share with those listeners in particular?
2: Well, uh, yes. Uh, My uh, I was also uh, well. I wasn't myself a cancer patient, but I was a caregiver for sure. But I lost my father to cancer right when I actually started my position here at Vanderbilt. I lost my father to lymphoma, and then about uh, two years after I started my position, uh, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. Who's a sociology professor and at in at Vanderbilt. Um, so uh, I uh, and she had to have surgery um, and everything turned out fine (laughs) however um, I was you know it was a huge burden to actually a lot more than I thought it was going to be to actually uh, take care of her after her surgery Um, and I didn't uh, uh, personally take advantage of any of the resources that the American Cancer Society offers For caretakers because I have a position at a medical center Um, we live very close to the hospital so there wasn't a lot of burden placed on us in terms of travel and we also had family that came and helped us but I I'm very aware that many families that are coming to Vanderbilt to the uh, Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center have to travel hundreds of miles Mm -hmm. to get their therapy Um, and that is a huge burden on the people that are taking care of them and the patients themselves, Um, and I'm very aware (laughs) of that for sure. Um, I'm not doing – my research doesn't really um, address those things, but certainly I'm aware of them. Um, What my research is more targeted towards is developing new therapies to kind of maybe in 5, 10, 15 years, decrease the burden that patients and caregivers um, are required to put in to take care of um, their cancer. So um, hopefully, um, if we had better therapies, that's, that all of that burden would be, would be decreased for sure. Um, and also, you know, really first glioblastoma in particular, trying to improve the the three-year and five-year survival rates for that particular cancer. Um, so, yeah, I definitely. The message that I would want to give those listeners would be: I'm aware of that. Um, your burden. I was taking care of my wife. We had a little five-year-old daughter that was asking me questions like, "Is mommy going to die?" and all of those things, and it really hit home. Um, and maybe just know that at least. At least this cancer researcher is uh, aware of that and definitely keeping that in the forefront of my mind.
1: Mm. Well, I'm so sorry about your dad and so also sorry about your wife's um, diagnosis and certainly wish her the best um, in her survivorship. And I think all of us appreciate that cancer, unfortunately it really doesn't bypass many of us. Most of us are impacted by cancer. So we are, um, you know, we're really grateful for your continued impact in the cancer arena. I think it's an incredibly uplifting message for patients and families to hear your excitement about your research and also to know that, you know, uh, none of us are spared, but we're all in this together. And I think that's a really great message of solidarity.
2: Yes, well, definitely. I I've yet to meet somebody that doesn't know somebody who knows somebody at least that has um, ha, that uh, has some experience with cancer. So it's uh, it, it affects everybody. And let it be known that I'm working hard, uh, and and I am very grateful for the support of the American Cancer Society. It's really made some of the fundamental discoveries that we've made in the lab possible. Without that funding, it wouldn't have been possible, and I, I really appreciate every dollar that people give. There's a ACS local chapter. Um, the students have a Relay for Life and asked me to speak at it. Um, that's a basically a fundraising event for the American Cancer Society, and the students were chipping in, you know, what was probably their lunch money or whatever money, five bucks, ten bucks at a time. And, you know, I definitely, was definitely aware of the fact that that was the money that was going to be funding my research in the lab. So um, I'm definitely aware of that and I'm very grateful to everything that both the ACS and the donors have done um, for, for the science that's happened in my lab. So thank you.
1: Well, Ray, we'll let you get back to it. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us, and um, we'll look forward to more great things to come.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you.